Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Joe Galati podcast, broadcasting high above the Texas Medical Center in Houston, purveyor of all things related to the liver, health and wellness, nutrition, food and cooking, and all-around doctor banter and witty repartee with our experts that visit us. Our website is drjoegalati.com. If you'd like to send me a note, subscribe to our newsletter, or even see me as a patient. If you want to call and be part of the program, dial us at 888-438-9431. And now, on with the podcast. from Houston, Texas, home to the world's largest medical center. This is Your Health First, the most beneficial health program on radio with Dr. Jill Galati. During the next hour, you'll learn about health, wellness, and the prevention of disease. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Galati. Well, a good Sunday evening to everybody. I'm Dr. Joe Galati, and thank you so much for tuning into Your Health First. We are here every Sunday between 7 and 8 p.m., one hour, but that is your hour throughout the week to get the health and wellness information that you need to become a better consumer of health care. And while We take care of patients. We treat their illnesses. Nothing drives us more than trying to prevent disease. And it comes down to you as the consumer understanding how your body works. And that's what we try week after week in our 17th year here every Sunday night with Your Health First. To stay in touch with us, drjoegalati.com is our website, drjoegalati.com. And from there, contact with all of our social media. You can go to our practice webpage, Liver Specialists of Texas, and stay in touch and send me a message. Now, for the program tonight, action-packed, we've got two very special experts that are on. Michael Garfield And if you have been in Houston for any amount of time, you know that Michael Garfield is a permanent fixture on the radio landscape here at iHeart. He is the high-tech Texan. And you say, okay, what is Michael Garfield going to talk about on Your Health First? Well, we're going to talk about bandwidth. Bandwidth. I'll leave it at that. He'll be coming up in the next segment. Then we have one of my favorite people my mentor, Dr. Eamon Quigley. Dr. Quigley and I have been working together since 1989. And of course, neither one of us have aged a bit. Dr. Quigley has many, many credentials, which we'll talk about in a moment. But we are going to be talking about constipation. What better on Sunday evening than to talk about constipation, to end your week on constipation and start your, start your week next week, Monday, on a good foot with nutrition and fiber and things like that. So 
High Tech Texan coming up in a few minutes, and then Dr. Eamon Quigley talking about constipation a little later in the program. All right. So last week we had Dr. Eric Lowitz from San Antonio on the uh, on the program talking about fatty liver disease. And I have been saying for a long time that fatty liver disease is outside of COVID and all that's going on with COVID now. Public enemy number one, our number one public health hazard related to obesity. And so this uh, this past week war was the... Um, European Association for the Study of Liver Disease. Normally, it's a wonderful meeting somewhere in Europe. Now, it was a virtual meeting. But out of the meeting, some good research came up, and there was a lot of information about fatty liver disease and how should we screen for this. And so the background story is that fatty liver disease, leading cause of cirrhosis, leading cause of disease, leading to liver transplant, liver failure, liver cancer— very, very serious medical problem. Now, how do we screen for this? Do we just um, get people that have elevated liver chemistries, et cetera? Well, this particular study looked at several hundred people with type 2 diabetes, adult onset diabetes. And what they found is that close to 50% of these people had normal liver chemistries. Their blood work was normal. So if that is the case, most of these people would have missed a flag. They would have missed being pulled aside to be evaluated for possibly having fatty liver. Well, what they did was they did some additional non-invasive testing, and they found that a rather high percentage of these people had advanced liver disease. And so what does that tell us? What is the take home here? Many of you may be sitting at home with type 2 diabetes. You go to your doctor and you're told you have normal blood work. Your your liver chemistries are normal. Nothing to worry about. That dreaded fatty liver disease isn't really a problem with me. But what this study is showing is that unrelated to the lab work, the mere fact that you have type 2 diabetes, they also added if you are obese, which goes hand in hand with fatty liver, that creates the perfect storm for developing fatty liver. So the take-home message here, as we've been saying, fatty liver is a huge public health problem. It seems like it is going to be a larger problem because there are more asymptomatic people out there that are walking around with advanced liver disease, putting them at risk for cancer, cirrhosis, etc. All right, coming up, Michael Garfield, the Garf, the high-tech Texan. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Don't forget to go to drjogalati.com. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Joe Galati coming up in a few minutes. Dr. Eamon Quigley talking For some, it may be a favorite topic, constipation, but it is important. Trust me, I would not have it on the program if it was not going to make you all better. And um, a person that claims to have never been constipated, Dr. Not Dr. Michael Garfield, but we could call you (laughs) Dr. Garfield tonight. Michael Garfield, the high-tech Texan, every Saturday between 11 and 1, 
950 KPRC, as I said earlier, a permanent fixture of the Houston radio landscape. Welcome to Your Health First. How are you, Michael? You are too kind, and the fact that I'm a lead-in to constipation really is the highest achievement I think I've had in 20 years in media here, Dr. It, Joe. It is. I think you need to update your bio and uh, just <laughs> add add us in here. So, you oh, know, it, it, I'm, I'm so happy to have you on, and you and I spoke on your program uh, really at the early part of the COVID epidemic, and we were talking more about telemedicine and the video conferencing and how that was going. But, you know, here we are. It is the end of August and things have not normalized the way we had thought. And we are more and more dependent on this online presence, quote unquote. And I guess my first question to you has been as a technology expert in in analyzing it and explaining it to us. Has all of this online usage put any kind of a a strain on the availability of getting good internet connectivity? You know what? That's probably the million-dollar question right now, because if you think about it, the second or third week in March when all this went down, and it was during school, maybe there was a spring break or two in there, right? and then then the world decided, hey, we're not leaving home. The fact is, institutions, schools, and I'm going to start with schools, and certainly works too, they had to flip on a dime, a dime, to quickly figure out how people are going to telecommute. Now, listen, telecommuting has been around for many, many years, sporadically, just a small percentage. But from going to 4 5 6% of the world to almost 100% of the world, it was big, which means the Internet, which is our lifeline, our lifeblood right now, right. was very taxed. And it slows down, not just Wi-Fi, but the actual broadband service itself, depending if you are, are getting it from Xfinity here in the Houston area. Maybe you have uh, another provider, but the fact is they didn't expect the, the big rush on servers. And so, yeah, it is slowing things down, which obviously slows work and it slows school. Well, you know, it, it, when when everybody talks about the online t- today in the era of COVID, you're talking about school and work. But in talking to my patients and friends and just, you know, people you run into, they are getting their music online. They are getting they're not going to the theater. They're not going to the, you know, the the 20 plex movie theater. They're getting everything online. They're taking cooking classes. They're they're taking exercise classes online. And and so what is it really that what part of the equation is going to limit their online experience to get all of these products and experiences? Is it What's hooked up in their home? Is it their Wi-Fi? Is it their, you know, six-year-old, you know, MacBook that they're now working off of? Where where do you think we should look? Well, kind of a two-parter. Number one, the whole psychology of actually being pinned to our houses and not going to the 20 megaplexes and going out to eat so often. I mean, that's one thing from a medical or psychological standpoint that probably, you know, you have more expertise. That's really affecting many people. But to answer your question from a technological standpoint, yeah, you start with your broadband. Now, let's just, whoever your ISP, your internet service provider, maybe that's who you pay your 50 to 150 or certainly probably even more dollars per month to get the internet connection in your home. Right. You want to maximize as much as you can. Again, it's based on what you can pay. You want to get the biggest bandwidth, the most download speed that you can. That's number one. 
it's like it's it's a um, it's a fire hose into your home. It's just it's just you want to just you know bring so much information and data in there. Then part two is many people are on Wi-Fi. Now think about this: if you're a parent, you've got a few kids, mm-hmm. they have their laptops, you've got some cell phones during the day. The kids are at the kitchen table doing their work and they're doing video conferences. Video takes a lot of data and bandwidth. Mom and dad are upstairs or downstairs and they're doing their work. Your Wi-Fi is taxed, so you want to make sure your Wi-Fi router is relatively new and it's up to speed. And one of the biggest tips I tell people that's really simple to do, figure out where your Wi-Fi router is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's in a closet. Sometimes it's in mom or dad's office in a corner of your house. If it's far away, you know, maybe it's a floor or two above, second floor, third floor, maybe uh, it's between brick walls. That slows the Wi-Fi signal down. You want to move the Wi-Fi router as close as you can to the center of the house or move the laptops a little closer to the Wi-Fi router. That, in effect, can speed things up greatly that people really don't need to go out and get faster service or even get a new router. Do you, do you find that a lot of people are upgrading their service because of this? You know what? I think um, now... <laughs> I don't think March, April, June, I don't think during the summer they did. I think over the past week, let's just say whenever school started, because school plus work, really, that's really when most all the the people in the household, they do have to start using that Internet. I think over the past two or three weeks, and I think over the next month or two, I think people are going to be saying that this is just not as fast as I can. They're going to have to call their ISP and get on a different plan to get something a little bit faster because, you know, you know, we talk about Zoom all the time, and there's so many others. There's Skype. There's Microsoft Teams. The video, it takes so much bandwidth, uh, and, and that's where you need to get is speed, 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 speed. And so, yeah, I think people are going to have to reassess how much they can pay and, and how much uh, uh, broadband that their ISP is going to offer. Now, how um, how much weight do you put on uh, as I said earlier, you know, I'm at home with a, say, a five-year-old PC or Mac laptop, which in technology, uh, you know, thought, that that's an old machine. How much of that is going to impair the experience, the online experience? If you ask me this, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I would have said a five-year-old machine makes a world of difference because, you know, technology has updated itself probably five times. The fact is we're in 2020. If you do have a machine that was built or bought around 2015, 2016, I got to say, for the most part, unless you have so much, you know, storage and files and data and flow, it should be fine in terms of the processors. The thing is, though, I, I, I recommend I try this technology. My job is not to tell people to run out and get the greatest and latest thing, because especially in nowadays, you know, we don't want to spend a ton of money just because of so many issues. Right. I think a, a machine three, four, five years old or fine. But the fact is, if you look at laptops right now, and, and I've been playing with a ton over the past three months for my back-to-school guide, you can get some laptops that are pretty pretty speedy for a relatively good price. And I would recommend, especially for grade school kids, middle school kids, and even older folks, grandparents, great-grandparents, if all they do is kind of surf, look for a Chromebook. Chromebooks, sure. it's using the Google operating system. But the fact is, the reason they don't use Microsoft Windows you don't have to pay the expensive license to Microsoft. And the machines, you can get anywhere between 200 to maybe $400. They come with the webcam. They come with the Internet, uh, you know, with the Wi-Fi chip built in, and they work relatively well. So that's not a big outlay relatively of getting a Chromebook without going spending 1500 to $2,500 for a really, really fast high-end laptop. Yeah, and, and that's where I, I would think um, 
I love Apple, but they're going to be very much on the high-end pricey side and maybe a little bit too much, uh, both price and, I hate to say, too much technology for sort of the rank-and-file user. What do, you, what do you think of that? I, I agree. Now, listen, it's, it's, if you listen to my show for 20 years and watch me, you know, everything that I do, I'm just not the biggest Apple fan. Not that I don't love the company, respect the company, but pound for pound, I'm trying to give you the best bang for your bucks. Apple has always priced themselves at the highest range, and they have some phenomenal gear that, the, as you said, the average rank and file they don't need. I'm a Microsoft Windows guy. I'm the, I'm the typical PC, the, that personal computer guy going way back when. I've been playing with some – let me give you some recommendations if that's okay. Sure. Um, I'm, a big, I'm a big HP fan. HP has a very large presence dating to the compact back here in the Houston area. Um, they have two or three powerful, very powerful – laptops that I think are, are right up there in terms of power, speed, what you can do with some of the Apples, anywhere between $500 to $750 or $800. Some of them are actually, they do several things. They could flip, the keyboards can actually flip around so they can turn into tablets, so they can set up kind of like a tent, so you can now sure. watch movies on the whole thing. They've got, they've got so one of them even has a built-in LT4G, uh, sorry, LTE 4G chip. So hmm. think about this. God forbid hurricanes come in and our and our and our routers go down. You still now can get onto the internet by using that cell phone chip that's built in. Obviously, you're going to get an, an, you're going to need a data plan for that. But the fact is, these are all in one, and they're certainly well under a thousand dollars. Really amazing. And I actually I picked up an HP because a particular voice recognition program that I use at work doesn't work off Mac, and so I searched it out and I picked up a very nice um, HP laptop and i'm really thrilled with it i guess i guess the last question here michael with all of this technology do you feel that technology has adapted to the new world to to you know be it the the developers the hardware uh uh companies are they realizing that you know what a lot of people are going to be working from home rather than going to the office in the years to come Without a doubt, that's not the question I would put. Listen, I think technology is, is, is up to speed, if not, you know, well ahead of us by years and years. It's the user adaptation. It's yes. the user issue. I don't think many people were ready to immediately, as I said, you know, flip on the switch and immediately go all virtual. Um, it's a paradigm shift. I, I use that term quite often. That I think I'm going to I'm going to call it my generation. Maybe a little younger. Maybe the forty to fifty to sixty year old generation mm-hmm. is like. They're a little slower. Listen, I've got three kids. One's in college. Two just graduated college. This is what they do. They they don't even. They don't, it's all on their phone. Their thumbs are you know so quick. In what they're doing, they they know how to video. They know how to do the TikTok, which is where the marketers going right now. Right. These kids, the younger ones, and certainly the college age ones too, because my college, you know, my son who's a junior in college right now, he's like, okay, so I don't have to walk the class. You know, I'm more than happy just to do the virtual thing. I could still you know understand the technology. I think we as users really need to realize that yeah, this is. It's going to get better, Joe. You know, hey, listen, give it six months, give it a year, whatever. We are going to semi get back to normal life, but the virtual world is going to stay. Um, we are still going to have to be doing a lot of things at telemedicine, whatever, so it makes it more convenient. But it's a long adaptation period that I think we're going to have to get used to. All right. Well said. Michael Garfield, thank you so much. 11 to 1 p.m. every Saturday, 950 KPRC. High-tech Texan, I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Dr. Eamon Quigley coming up after the news. Stay tuned. We will be right back.
Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Joe Galati. Every Sunday, we're here to raise your health IQ, one listener at a time. That is our motto. Go to drjoegalati.com for more information about what we have and will be talking about. I hope you enjoyed Michael Garfield, the last segment. He is always full of energy and never know what he's going to say. All righty. Well, as I had said earlier, the next person, Dr. Eamon Quigley, has been on the program, and he is one of the few people that was patient enough to dial in during the years he lived in Ireland in the middle of the night calling into your health first. But let me just give you a little background on Dr. Quigley before we get him on. He is uh, currently the David M. Underwood Chair of Medicine in Digestive Disorders, Department of Medicine, Professor of Medicine at Houston Methodist Hospital. He is the past president of the American College of Gastroenterology and the World Gastroenterology Organization, former editor of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, former dean medical school in Cork, Ireland, author, researcher, and all-around awesome physician. Dr. Quigley, welcome again to Your Health First. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's great to be with you again, Joe. Um, it's been maybe a year or two since we were together, but we've, we've done this many times before, and I've always enjoyed it. Yes, yes. And I, and, I, and I believe that the one thing you and I both share outside of patient care is education, and this is, this is the crux of, of the program here. Now, in all of the possible topics that I could ask you to talk about, constipation is the one tonight. So um, we, we, this is a no-bars topic uh, for this program. So um, I guess before we really dive into it, a lot of people say, I'm constipated. Uh, but there may not be constipated. So really... Uh, what would you say is your definition of what constipation is for everybody listening tonight? Well, first of all, I applaud you, uh, Joe, for bringing this topic up because I think it's one that's unfortunately gets doesn't get the airtime it should. Yeah, because it really is very distressing for for many many people. And I think you bring up a very important point, and that's the definition of constipation. Uh-huh. Constipation means many different things to many people, and one of the things we have physicians failed to appreciate was that it does mean different things. For many years, we were fixed to this kind of Victorian concept that constipation meant that you didn't have a bond movement every day or every second day. Mm-hmm. We now know that that's actually only a minority of, of the problem of constipation. For many people, constipation simply means that they had difficulty having a bond movement, and I think that's the essence of the problem. Mm-hmm. They have to strain, they feel it's not complete, they have to try and try again, or for some people who are very distressed, they get the urge to go and they just can't do anything. And that's very distressing for people and can lead to a lot of problems. So I think we've become a lot more flexible in our understanding of constipation and even the guidelines and the base bodies that come up with these definitions now acknowledge that we have to be a lot more broad, if you like, in our concept of constipation and broad in a way that truly understands what our patients are suffering from. Well, you you know, that approach, which I fully endorse, requires two things. One is listening on the part of the physician or having a set of probing questions to clarify it. 
And many times the patients, when when we do ask them about how often or how much straining or what symptoms, they almost seem a little caught off guard to say, well, you know, if I had um, known this question ahead of time, I would have prepared for you a little bit better. What do you think of that, that on the physician side, we're not asking the right questions or spending the time and patients aren't quite able to describe what really is happening, probably because they're embarrassed. Well, you've actually hit on two of the most important issues in this whole area. And the first is, unfortunately, where we've let people down, and that is not listening. And one of the things I tell our students and our trainees all the time is when they say, oh, so-and-so is constipated or so-and-so has diarrhea, I say, well, what exactly do they mean? And they look at me as if I've got two heads. Right. Um, because that actually is the essence of the problem. Right. And I think when you have a patient sitting with you, whether you're a primary care doctor or a specialist, and they say they've got constipation, you must fully understand exactly what the patient means by that before they leave the, the consulting room. If you haven't done that, you've actually failed the patient. Because you're likely to make decisions on their behalf, which may actually take them in completely the wrong direction. Right. And you're also likely to prescribe things for them, which may be totally useless. So I think that's the, the first part of your question. The other part actually is, is very important. And I think we should be more proactive in terms of, of looking after our patients and that, in other words, you know, teeing up some of these issues, perhaps by questionnaires ahead of time, mm-hmm. or perhaps by, um, you know, raised pieces of, of patient education beforehand to so that they can talk, think about things about you know, what exactly happens when I try to have a bowel movement. Right, right. Do I have to strain? How long, is it, how, how long am I sitting there trying to have a bowel movement? Is it painful? Uh, do I feel that it's complete? Do I have to try again? Th- those are questions which, you know, because they are that I've, I've been interested in, we ask routinely. But I think um, it doesn't take very long, actually. But I think you can make fatal errors, uh, and fatal may be the wrong word, but I think you can make serious errors in terms of assessment without, if you don't make, ask those questions. Well, you know, the one, the, sort of the, the, the sister set of questions here, uh, which is, I think, part of this whole discussion here, is for patients to describe for me, or for you, what their stool looks like. And there again, there are some patients that literally will come with a sketchbook of the stool and others are flabbergasted that we're asking and they will say, well, excuse me, I just am not a looker. And I have to say, look, start looking because that may help out. What do you say to the people that are not looking? Well, we actually now in our in my consulting rooms, when we were seeing patients live, yeah. uh, have a little chart in each of the rooms. It's called the Bristol Stool Scale. Yes. And the Bristol, of course, is a city in England. And the reason it's called the Bristol Stool Scale is that many years ago, uh, and actually an outstanding uh, clinician, gastroenterologist, and clinical researcher, uh, developed the Bristol Stool Scale, whereby they, they have little pictures. You know, it goes all mm-hmm. the way from diarrhea to the hardest of hard stool. And they score them, and you can look at it. And, in fact, one of the things I found amazing was that, you know, this chart is up in, in our examination rooms, and before I go into the room, the patients say, well, I'm a three, or I'm a two, <laughs> yeah, or I'm right. a five. <laughs> and you're already you're off to a great start. Yes. Because one, one of the things that has been discovered is that that Bristol stool scale 
actually correlates very well with the function of the colon. And I think that's been a major, it's a very simple, very completely patient-orientated device, but it's actually very helpful. And I think it's it's the ultimate icebreaker, in a sense, to say, okay, instead of getting graphic with everything, just point one through five, tell me where you're at here, and it, it, it gets down. Now, when, when you look at the statistics, uh, you know, everybody from the NIH to the various medical societies say about 2.5 million people suffer constipation. I would almost think that you could almost double that number. What, what do you think? Correct. Correct. Well, you know, it's actually, you know, there, there are a couple of things that need to be said. Constipation is very common. Uh, for some people, it's transient. And one of the things, for example, when people travel, they often become constipated because maybe they, you know, traveling in an airplane can lead to some changes which may promote constipation. They mm-hmm. may change their fluid intake. But more importantly, they probably change their diet. So transient constipation is very common. But chronic constipation, you're absolutely correct. I, I would say it's more like 10 or 15% of the population. Right. Um, and, of course, you know, uh, one of the things, important things about constipation is that it does get more common as you get older. And it, and it is one of the the burdens that you and I bear as we, yeah. as we get older. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have to concede that. I, I thought um, we were immune from that, Eamon. I... <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry, Joe, to have to say this, but we are getting older, you know? Yeah. And... Um, so, in, in, and, and, you know, and there are many reasons, quite apart from, you know, changes in physiology that, that lead to that. But it is, you know, I, I think, you know, I've been involved in this area for many years. And I, I, every day I say to myself, you know, one of the things that is totally being ignored and totally not being researched the way it should be is constipation. Right. But the distress I see for people who cannot have a normal bowel movement is incredible. Well, you and know, totally underappreciated. Oh, oh, it is, and and um, you know, you know, and and for full disclosure here, you you were my teacher many many years ago at University of Nebraska, and, and have developed a fondness for you. But you taught me well. But I, as a hepatologist, I see at least one or two patients <clears throat> every day that have nothing. Nothing wrong with their liver. They are coming to me for abdominal pain to the point that they are seeing surgeons. They are going to the ER. And I hate to say in all of 10 minutes, I'm like, you're constipated. And it is so distressing that it is almost at epidemic levels today compared to 10 years ago. Are you seeing the same trend? And it's a lot of young people. Yes, I think there are a lot of factors involved here. I think, you know, there's obviously dietary factors. Right. Um, there's no question that, you know, high fiber diet, which is the traditional, if you like, rural diet of, you know, people who live in the country, uh, in contrast to the highly processed diet of people who live in urban areas, there's no question that diet is a factor. <clears throat> you, you remember, uh, and I remember very well, a gentleman called Dennis Burkus, <clears throat> yes, who was actually a missionary doctor in Africa for many years. He's dead for a number of years now, but he made a critical observation when he worked in Africa, and that is that he didn't see constipation in rural Africans. Mm-hmm. He didn't see diverticular disease. He didn't see hemorrhoids. And he related this correctly, I believe, to the fact that these rural African people didn't eat a lot of meat, but they had a lot of high-fiber foods, which, of course, resulted in a soft, bulky stool, which was easy to pass and didn't cause constipation or diverticular disease, or hemorrhoids, or various other problems. So I think that was a critical observation I think remains true to this day. And I think, you know, 
you know, certainly certain segments of the population have become aware of this and are, you know, eating more fiber, eating more vegetables, eating mm-hmm, more fruit. Mm-hmm. But for many people, that is simply unattainable because it's expensive. Right, right. Eamon, what we're going to do is take a quick break here. Dr. Eamon Quigley, world-famous gastroenterologist and professor of medicine. A great honor to have him on the program tonight. tonight. Stay tuned. Final segment coming up. More constipation. We're going to dig a little deeper. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Don't forget drjogalati.com. Stay tuned. Don't move. We'll be right back. Staring at Every Sunday between 7 and 8 p.m., your radio or your smart device should be tuned into Your Health First. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. And the topic of tonight is constipation. We're not ashamed to talk about it, but we talk about it with gusto with Dr. Eamon Quigley, Chair of Medicine at Houston Methodist Hospital, heading up the GI and Digestive Disorder, Professor of Medicine. Eamon, um, with with the discussion of constipation, I I do think the one thing I want to cover is that with it being so common, and as you said, not enough fiber, not drinking enough water, people are used to it, they expect it. There are a couple of situations that truly demand a somewhat urgent medical evaluation, and that is what I'd like to cover in the next few minutes. What are those red flags that you you cannot simply say, oh, I'm constipated, I was... I was on a trip, I was traveling, or I was eating too much Mexican food, whatever the case may be. What are the red flags that everybody now, tonight, needs to realize they have to be very careful? Well, I think if you get to the stage where you haven't had a bowel movement for days and your stomach is getting distended and you've got pain, that's the real problem. It, it could re- reflect either that there's an obstruction in the bowel or that the stool has got so hard and, and impacted that it's just right. not getting out. So sure. I think that that's... That, that would be a classic example. The other situation would be if there are any other symptoms like bleeding, for example, if there's blood on the stool, uh, if it's actually progressed to the stage where there might be associated nausea or vomiting or weight loss. They are all red flags for any of these uh, symptoms, mm-hmm. which should lead to, to fairly immediate attention. Now, there are some, um, as we like to say, more systemic disorders, problems with the thyroid and other hormone issues, uh, things yeah. like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's. How yeah. how may that clue somebody in and, and maybe simply present with constipation may be one of the more obvious complaints that they have? Right. Now, to put, them, put it in perspective, for the average person with constipation, the likelihood that they have one of these disorders is low. Yes. <clears throat> but there's something we think about. So let's deal with it. So if you've got an underactive thyroid, you know, the, one of the things that thyroid does is it kind of regulates your metabolism throughout the body. So it keeps everything kind of G'd up. So if your thyroid level is very low, everything kind of slows down, including the movement of contents to your intestine, mm-hmm. and that will lead to constipation. Um, so that's something that in, in people with chronic constipation, that we would fairly routinely check for. It's usually not necessary to check for it because it's something that is done by your primary care physician on a fairly routine basis anyway, particularly in this area. Uh, Now, in terms of the other conditions like Parkinson's, that's a very interesting story. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I've had a fairly long-standing interest, as you may remember, oh, yeah. way mm-hmm. back in the Nebraska days, in the whole issue of, of gastrointestinal problems in Parkinson's. And there's now actually quite a bit of literature to suggest that constipation may be the first symptom of Parkinson's. Right. And that people may have constipation many, many years before they get any other typical symptoms of Parkinson's. Now, when you get you know, fairly established Parkinson's, constipation can be a major issue. And there's this fascinating science here. <clears throat> and one of the fascinating pieces is that uh, if you look at the gut wall, and there's a nervous system in the gut wall in everybody, mm-hmm. and if you look at the nervous system in the gut wall in Parkinson's, you see the same changes there as you see in the brain in Parkinson's. Yeah, wow. So, and that leads to you know, great difficulty in getting things through the, the gut, and also, of course, it leads to great difficulty with coordination, the same way that you get the tremor and the difficulty with balance, etc. with Parkinson's, that can also affect the muscles that allow you to have an effective bowel movement. So constipation can be a major problem for people with Parkinson's, and for some people it can be so distressing that it really outweighs any of the other symptoms they have. Yeah. And, and in fact, any, virtually all the neurological diseases can be associated with constipation for a variety of reasons. In some cases, because the gut itself is involved, in other situations, because their muscle function generally is so poor that they just can't have an effective bowel movement. Yeah. Now, the one, the <laughs> one other, and, and we may have to say this is our last, uh, last topic for, for tonight. Um, irritable bowel syndrome, you are truly a, yes. a, a, an expert on this, but yes, constipation is a big part of, of irritable bowel, but Correct. when, when is that an overused line and it really may be something else? So what is the sort of the tolerance to say, yes, you have IBS and eat more fiber and go away? What, what do you think to that? Well, I think there are a lot of factors you have to bear in mind here. And I, and I always say to students and, you know, I've said this before, it's all about context. Right. If you've got a 25-year-old woman, and it's usually a woman if it's constipation, uh, who has that constipation, is otherwise is fit and healthy, hasn't lost weight, nothing else, probably doesn't need a lot more investigation. On the other hand, if you have somebody who's been properly well for many years and now at the age of 64... I suddenly develop constipation and abdominal pain, you need to pay attention. Right. So context is all important. You've already mentioned, you, you, you've highlighted the issue of these red flags that we look for, the, you know, the blood in the stool, the weight loss, the nausea, the vomiting, all of these symptoms which you say, you know, which should lead us to say, gee, there could be something else going on here and should lead to some investigations, maybe a colonoscopy or some imaging, for example, to look at it, into it further. So, it's about context and symptoms, and as we can say this over and over again, listen to the patient. They that, will tell you the truth. Absolutely. That is the message for tonight. Dr. Eamon Quigley, so much of a pleasure having you on, and we will get you back on again as promised. Joe, great as always to talk to you. All right. All the very best. All right. Have a great evening now. All right. Dr. Eamon Quigley does not get any better than that, and truly a um, a uh, a gift that we have here at Houston Methodist and in Texas. All right, Josh, let's take it away. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Next Sunday, 7 o'clock, your health first. Go to drjoegalati.com. I will see you next week. If you have constipation issues, reach out to us. We're here to help you out. Take care. 
Thanks for listening today to our podcast. Don't forget, for more information, check out drjoegalati.com. Information about my book, Eating Yourself Sick, is available there, as well as our clinical practice, radio program, and social media links. We need you to be part of our tribe and community. Until we meet again, I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Ciao.